founded in the mid-1990s, the Women's National Basketball Association is home to some of the world's best women's basketball talent, featuring some of the game's best players and best moments in women's basketball history. Central Wisconsin has its own WNBA star, and today we'll get a behind-the-scenes look at what it's like to be one of the world's elite athletes. Welcome to Route 51. I'm Shireen Seward. Today, we're excited to welcome Janelle McCarvel to the program to talk about her WNBA experience and her decision to return home to coach girls basketball at Spash, where she was once a player herself. Janelle, welcome. Hey, thank you. Happy to be here. So tell me about your time gr growing up. You grew up in Custer, which is a you know, pretty small town uh, near Stevens Point. Were you always good at basketball, like starting in, in grade school? Um, I think overall the family was relatively athletic. Uh, I didn't necessarily know basketball was going to be my calling. I kind of played every single sport possible, including football, uh, because all the brothers played. So I think it just naturally you know, put me in a position to want to be athletic and continue with what I could do. Um, it just so happened I picked up a basketball in, in seventh grade that really uh, propelled what it is to, to, to what I am today. How many brothers do you have? <clears throat> I have three brothers and one sister. Everybody's older than me. Okay, you're the youngest in, in the family, just like me, the baby. Yep, All the right. best one. All right. Oh, of course, obviously, <laughs> right? <laughs> Did you get a lot of support from your from your brothers and sisters uh, when you decided <clears throat> to play basketball? I did. Uh, the whole family was very supportive, um, all the way through extended cousins. We had a great a great togetherness. Um, everybody enjoyed everybody else's success and supported, and I think that was what made uh, my situation ideal for me. There was never any pressure to perform. It was really just enjoy the moment and uh, what happened happened. So it was a great, a great learning, a great learning environment. And uh, with the support of family, tremendous, tremendous for me to come through. Well, like a lot of us in Wisconsin, you grew up in a small town, farm kid. Um, you know, being a farm kid, there's a lot going on. It's a busy thing to be in a farm family, right? So how did you manage to carve out the time you needed to really develop your skills? Um. A lot of it was stuff done at home, you know, when nobody's looking, when there's no coaches around or, you know, friends around even because, again, farm life. So I'm dribbling on a 10 by 10 cement slab, shooting at a homemade hoop that we that me and my father constructed. Um, and again, it's the work that was put in outside of actual basketball practice in town because we really only had one vehicle to get to town. Mom had to make choices on uh which kid to pick up from which sport and things like that. So we didn't have the luxuries to always be in town at a facility. Um, so I, I honed a lot of my, a lot of my abilities on the concrete slab out, out by the cows. And then in high school, you played for a spash, um, Stevens point uh, in, in high school, were you a big standout there too? Uh, yes. <laughs> Not at <laughs> first, of course. Um, you know, I kind of grew into it. I came in as a, a sophomore and I made varsity and I got playing time and did well. I, I don't think I started my, uh, my sophomore year. I could be wrong, um, <clears throat> but it, it, it was it was a work in progress. I was never a standout where somebody said, oh, my God, you're going to be a superstar one day. It was really just put in work and every single day build on it and grow, never be content. And then, you know, many, many days of doing that built consistency. And again, here we are today with uh, some of the same values that, got me started when I was younger. 
So after high school, you ended up at the University of Minnesota. Did you choose that school or were you recruited? How did that work out? So I was recruited by about four or five major Division mm -hmm. I schools. Um, Green Bay was in the list, uh, not too far from home. Good coach in Kevin Borseth. He's still there, a legend in his own right, still coaching. Um, would have loved to have the opportunity to play for him as well at that organization. Uh, just didn't happen. But then there was also o Old Dominion, which is out in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, the University of Wisconsin and uh, the University of Minnesota were all pretty much in the running. It just so happened Wisconsin got in late. Uh, Minnesota was on me from probably about my sophomore year and interested to give me the scholarship. They only had one scholarship to give that season. And uh, yeah, they told me it was mine. So <clears throat> in my mind, with one to give and they chose me, it meant they wanted me that much. Um, so in a way, it was kind of a match made in heaven. Ironically, kind of funny is the coach that recruited me got fired before I even got there. Oh, no. But in, yeah. In my mind, it was still, you know, the best fit for me, though. So I was uh, I never wavered on my decision. How does that whole process work? I mean, I, I was not uh, obviously a star athlete, so I don't know what it's like to be <clears throat> recruited by a school. What happens? Do they send out scouts to look at games or what's the process like? Back then, video was not as uh, easy to acquire as it is now. Um, so they had to come to games and watch and then they would go to tournaments that you would play in. Uh, AAU, the Amateur Athletic Union, was just kind of getting going in girls basketball. So I was able to jump into a program and then get more exposure than just in uh, the school season where that runs November through February. So the more exposure got more eyes on me and I was able to, you know, showcase my um, talents to the country because we went to different places around uh, the United States to play our tournaments. <clears throat> so then, so then they become aware of who you are. Then do they have conversations with your parents or you directly or the coaches? What happens next? <clears throat> yeah, it's, it's quite a process. Uh, they're interested. So they look at you, then they tell you how much they like you, you know, then they wine and dine you with what they have to offer. Come to my school because we have this, you know, sometimes they, talk down of other schools and are a little negative because, you know, they're trying to hype themselves. And then, you know, as a 16, 17, and then 18 year old kid, you have to make these big decisions that are, you know, life forming and life changing at the moment without realizing it. as to where are you going to be for the next four years? <clears throat> so, you know, the coaches come in, they, <clears throat> they sit at your kitchen table, they meet mom and dad or whoever's in charge of the, the household. You know, and they basically say, I'm going to take care of your kid and this is what she's going to get and this is what she will learn. This is, uh, you know, our philosophy and what we'll do. And then depending on who you have coming after you to talk to you and want you at their university, you have to narrow down what's the best fit for you um, in, the, in that situation. So you got a scholarship to go to Minnesota and, and you ended up there. What is it like to play uh, when you get there? Um, what is when is the season when do you start practices how is it like all year long that you're involved that you have to be involved with the program yes even more so now but back then I graduated high school uh and then had the summer to myself and then went to college just like every other kid uh normally would when school starts and then thrust into practice practices in season 
or as you're going are 20 hours a week. Um, and like I said, the coach that recruited me violated some of these rules. Therefore, it was found out upon and she was fired. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but it's 20 hours a week. You have study hours. You have to meet with counselors consistently. And yes, it is a year-round job uh, for college student athletes with what is expected of them through training, weights, video, meetings, travel, away games, homework. You know, it's it's quite a job, to be honest. Uh, yeah, and you're a full-time student on top of it, right? So, oh, I mean, yep. are there uh, academic rules, too, that you, you have to maintain a certain grade point average, or is that does that change from school to school? I believe it changes from school to school. Um, when I was in the situation a few moons back, it was uh, a 2.0. You had to be above a 2.0 your freshman year. And then I think the standards raise a little bit each year in order to propel you into being better than average. So there are standards. Some are more lax than others, depending on what they're looking for out of their student athletes, whether it's more student or more athlete. What was that like for you, juggling all that stuff? I mean, sometimes we forget that these college athletes are 18, 19, 20 years old. They're young kids yet. So how how difficult was that for you? It was very difficult to start, uh, but you learn. You, you grow custom and you adapt. You have to be able to grow as an individual and a person, and that just propels you into it. You don't have mommy and daddy at home anymore. You're not sleeping in your own bed. There's nobody to wake you up. You know, all these things that were once a non-issue are all of a sudden your responsibility. So being a college athlete um, really propels you into being ready for the workload that is coming as an adult if and when your basketball or sports career ends. So you uh, really did well at the University of Minnesota. I mean, was that really when you start started feeling like this is going to be my life? <clears throat> Honestly, no. Again, at that level... I was still just enjoying it. It was, um, I was just starting to get a grasp on what the WNBA was as well um, and what the possibilities were, but never in my life or in those moments did I think basketball would take me to the places it did. I had no comprehension of a European basketball career or that there was another season other than the WNBA happening. And it just so happens that the European season and the WNBA season work together so they don't overlap too much and people are able to do both uh euro basketball and wnba if you're good enough to play at that level so the the wnba uh, you know, came calling i guess uh after your your career in college ended so how <clears> does <throat> that work i mean how do they how does the wnba draft even work so kind of like college they recruit you a little bit i was high enough on the on the totem pole to be recruited by the top three. Um, so they, everybody flew me into their city to have an interview, a walkthrough of the arenas and where we'd be playing and meet the higher ups and, you know, shake a lot of hands and kiss a lot of babies type of thing. All in the aspect or understanding of trying to figure out who I am as a person. And if I will fit in their organization or something along those lines, because again, if they're going to spend a number one pick on you, they want to make sure you're a good person you're a good teammate and you're going to do the right things, not necessarily um, <clears throat> opposite of what, what they're looking for. So it's just an interview process at that point. And then you don't know. I mean, up until my name was called, there was no way I knew that I was going first. I was in a talented class, but still I did not know that I was going first. 
So do they pick a, a, you know, a handful of players they think might be first round picks or first uh, you know, their top choices and they, they invite them to come to certain cities and, and how many, how many places did you tour? Um, <clears throat> I went to the top three and yes, the three at the time were Chicago, uh, Indiana and um, North Carolina, which would have been the Charlotte's thing. Ultimately, the Charlotte's thing had the first pick and they ended up choosing me. Um, who you want, if the first one, two and three are looking for a certain someone, they will invite them. Past that, I don't think anybody invites anybody any longer just because you don't know if they're going to be there or not. And WNBA teams are not stacked with money, so they don't have the ability to bring in 20 people and only draft two of them. Um, in terms of who's invited to the, the actual draft itself, yes, it is a willy-nilly assumption by the committee thinking who's going to be drafted. And it's similar to the NBA and NFL and baseball. You know, some people don't make it out of that first round, and they're still sitting in the room, you know, with camera on them saying, hmm, I wish somebody would have picked me or I wish I wouldn't have come to come to this spot. Uh, but it happens. You don't know. The teams don't know either. And it's if you got that number one pick, you know. But two and on, it all relies on who's left. You're listening to Janelle McCarville on Route 51, discussing professional women's sports from a Custer native who is now retired from the WNBA. I'm Shereen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. back on Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. I'm Shereen Seward. We continue now with Janelle McCarville, a retired professional basketball player from Custer who is back in central Wisconsin coaching the girls team at SPASH. So you are picked first in the WNBA draft. What was that moment like for you when you heard your name? It was exhilarating, to be honest. It was very unexpected, yet expected. But again, it's it's all in the wind. You don't know what's really going to happen. So when it finally happened, uh, I was lucky enough to have my mother and father with me in New York. We got to experience it all, be at the same table. You know, your name's called, you get up, you get to walk across the stage. And then, you know, it's you're in the bright lights and it's you're on to the next step after that moment. So you're a Midwest farm girl. You're chosen by Charlotte. Were you scared? I mean, you must have been scared, right? Uh, not scared, excited. You know, I think I was ready for the next step. I'd already been away from home. I went to the University of Minnesota, so I spent four years away from home already. I don't think the distance meant anything to me. Uh, I knew what was, you know, the job at hand and what was what was in front of me. So I really leaped into it. I was excited to get out of college and onto the next step of making money and earning my keep for the most part. Speaking of money, how much do WNBA players make? I'm assuming they don't make as much as men's players do. They do not make as much as men's players. Um, again, many, many moons ago when I was drafted, uh, the maximum was, I think, $45,000 for the number one draft pick. And everybody after that went down. Each year after that, I got a $1,000 raise and... 
I was held in for four years into that, into that contract. So in the WNBA aspect of it, I didn't make great money, um, you know, for what was scheduled and the things that were on the docket that was wear and tear on the body, mind, body, and soul. Um, it was a lot, it was tough. And, uh, luckily the new age of WNBA players make a lot more. I think first round picks are up into the eighties to nineties right now. And maximum salaries are into the two hundreds top about two fifty. I'm curious too, are there benefits like healthcare? Do you get, get those kinds of things when you're a WNBA player as well? Yep. You're insured through the, through the league. Everything is cared for. You get the best, uh, best treatment to man, known to man. Um, but a little bit, it becomes a job and, you know, sometimes you're a workhorse and they work you till they don't need you anymore. And then they put you out kind of like any business in a way. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a few benefits uh, as long as you use them up uh, along the way and take advantage of it for sure. So take me through your story. You get chosen, you, you're, you're going to go to Charlotte. What happens next after that? Do you go right away and start practicing right away? T- tell me about it. No, I went back. I forget when the draft was actually held in New York, but it was maybe months before the WNBA actually started. So then I went back to college, tried to get my life together uh, and sorted. And then early March, I would say, I went to the WNBA. It's a whirlwind. They want to get you there as fast as possible, start to train you, already get you set into your apartment or whatever living facility. So it's, it's done and out the way. And from that point on, it is training and it is preparation for the season at hand. Um, and they go hard. Things are expected of you. It is a job at this point. It is not, we're happy to have you. It is, you better earn your keep um, for management. It, and, and how long is the season for the WNBA? Four months where okay. training camp could be about a month. So it's about a five month season. Um, if you go overseas and you extend your season you come back late to training camp, it's less time frame for you. But you're already in shape, so the teams usually don't mind that. So if you don't go uh, overseas, you have the rest of the year to just train on your own time, do your own thing. Do some people have other jobs too? or or? If you stay stateside, yes. Some people had other jobs, uh, again, to supplement income and whatnot because you're only paid through the WNBA season. So you make your amount, you know, taxes are subtracted. We're classified as entertainers so we are taxed in every state we play in um you know so that also takes a little bit out it's not much most likely because we don't make much but you know it's relative to the contract so i mean it's still a lot uh that they're taking out as that entertainer tax but again it comes with the job job description what are the relationships like with the players i mean did you form tight bonds with them or is there a lot of competition what is it there's a lot of competition. Again, you know, I was the number one pick. There are veterans on the team that said, you know, they were better than me and shouldn't play or I should they should play over me or more time or they just wanted to assert dominance. It was it's kind of funny. Um my my rookie year in Charlotte, I had a veteran always take my headphones for warm-ups because she told me she didn't want hers to get ruined. So she took mine and I remember, you know, like, I remember one to fight her. I was so mad. She'd bring mine all back sweaty. And I was like, <laughs> this isn't right. But uh, yeah, you know, the veterans try to establish dominance. Um, 
set the tone, what's expected as a player. There is a little bit of hazing in in good rights. Uh, uh, when I got to Charlotte, yes, I was the number one pick and supposedly the best player in the league at that point. And I had to get donuts every single game from Krispy Kreme. And uh, Don Staley, who is the head coach of <laughs> the, the South Carolina Gamecocks right now, would be there waiting. And if the donuts weren't hot and fresh and ready, she made me go back to get hot, <laughs> fresh, and ready no for the play. So there was, you know, there was high expectations. <laughs> From a donut standpoint, too. <laughs> Everything. It just, it set the bar. If you didn't, if you didn't do your job well here, you weren't going to do it well, you know, later on. So she really, she really was a, a great person to be around. And she's a great leader. And I can see why she's having such success at uh, South Carolina with the number one team in the country right now. Did you love it? I mean, when you when you were with the WNBA, did you love it or, or did it feel right? Or or do you look back at it and say, man, I don't know. Some days I look back and say, man, I don't know. But in the moment, it was awesome. You know, it just took its toll uh, on missing things and being away from home and your body taking a toll. But for the most part, it was all I knew. So I don't wish I did anything different other than maybe take better care of myself along the way to not have little knickknack injuries here or there that kept me out or limited or put me in the position I am in today. But I would not do, I would not change much. That is for sure. I enjoyed it. It was a high expectation. Some coaches were good. Some teammates were good. Some coaches were not so good. Some teammates were not so good. Some situations in Europe, you know, again, everything was some years were better than others. Just like a normal job. Some days you like it. Some days your coworkers are great. Some days not. So let's talk about the international leagues. When did you become kind of aware that that was a possibility for you? And and <clears throat> how how did you pursue it? What what happens? Well, being drafted, I did not have a con- um, I did not have a contact for an agent yet. So I was drafted number one. I did not sign a shoe deal or anything like that. And I do believe I might be the only number one pick who never had a shoe deal actually but that was also because I didn't have an agent to to fight for me either but once I got to Charlotte uh, a few of my teammates name dropped a guy and said he does not he does not look for um, clients the clients have to come for him so I gave him a call and it was a match made in heaven Um, he was very accommodating and I was very low maintenance so so this is your agent now this is my agent okay and then from that point he was like, where do you want to go overseas? And I said, I don't know. I didn't plan on going overseas. And he's like, well, you know, it's a great way to stay in shape, make more money. You know, the better you play, the more money you get. Where do you want to go? And I said, okay, <laughs> find me some teams. So the first year he came back with uh, a team in Spain and I was in heaven. I loved it. I thought it was the greatest idea possible. In my first year in the WNBA, I hurt my back. Uh doing hand cleans and squats and it continued into European season. So when I got to Europe, my first year in Spain, I could only play one month and I was in Zaragoza, Spain, living the life, driving a sweet little car, traffic, <laughs> you know, like anything you could imagine. I was, my mind was blown. I was in a different city on my own, living my own life, um, unfortunately injured. So my first year was cut short and the second year I went, it was a little bit more stable situation. So I spent two years in Slovakia, uh, the next two years of European basketball. 
Loved so it. So what's that like? I mean, you go and there's there's players from all over the world, I'm guessing, who are playing with you. You meet all these you know different people. Um, what are those relationships like? Is it, is it as competitive as it is in the States or, or a little bit different? You got to break down barriers. You know, they're not all Americans are viewed great. Uh, back then, we kind of had uh, a negative stereotype with uh, the athletes that we didn't really want to be there. So some players and some teams were not happy with Americans, but they knew they needed them to have a little bit of success. Um, so me personally, I repaired all those uh, broken bridges and I had great relationships with every single team I've played on. I am still great friends with numerous um, players from different countries that I still communicate with, not daily, but you know, monthly. And some of these people I haven't played with in a dozen years. Um, but it would, we would just pick up like normal. But that's also me and how I was raised and, you know, the the style I I live. And I'm very open and friendly and, you know, made the, great relationships overseas that stayed is all I'm trying to say. It's the Midwest nice thing. It is Midwest nice. They loved mm-hmm. it. Was, mm-hmm. It's a good fit for us. So you're in Spain. You're How tall are you, by the way? I am 6'2", so 108 you're, centimeters. You're tucking your six foot two frame into a teeny tiny little car in Spain. <laughs> How was that? <laughs> it was good. It wasn't as teeny tiny as my car in Italy though. Like that car was smaller, oh. <laughs> but you know, again, it's you thrust into the culture and lifestyle. You just, you don't, you don't buck it. You roll with it. You know, that's again, what gave us bad names is people complaining and wanting a bigger car. I'm an American. I'm used to this. You know, I don't want to drive this little thing, but I was, you know, I jumped right in and lived my life. I love to travel overseas. So I, I'm just, I'm smiling as you're talking because I'm thinking about how that is. And it, it is so cool to go over there and and just kind of be with with people from other cultures. And it sounds like you really soaked that up. I did my best, you know, again, immersing myself into the culture and the lifestyle that is there. I've played in dozens of countries that are complete opposites of each other uh, with styles, cultures, and, you know, social norms for that matter. Um, Slovakia was way back when before the Euro and they had their own money. So I remember then going out and getting food and spending maybe about $6 to eat a meal. And then coming back five, six years later when they swapped and I was paying 15 to $20 at the same spot, you know, so I saw times change economically as well. And again, there's crazy again just a little farm from a farm in custer that i'm i'm experiencing these things it was truly amazing what basketball has done for me did you get to explore some other countries too when you were there besides i mean you're i mean obviously you're busy you're playing basketball and you're training and you're doing all these things but were you able to travel through a a little bit or or you know really get to experience a lot of europe a bit i got to experience the places that we were at and we would travel to you know Again, it was my job, so I always had work to be done, practice every day. I couldn't really, you know, jump on a plane or train and go live somewhere else or tour for a week somewhere else because I had to be, you know, in the office, so to speak. But the teams and the players that I've been a part of did a great job um, giving us time when we went places to be tourists and to be tourists together for the most part. So, yeah, I really try to soak it in. Um, Some of my favoritest events could have been – I uh, brought my father to Moscow, saw the Red Square together, 
we went on a, a train to Hungary, Germany. Um, when I was in China, I got to go to the Great Wall. I spent uh, a sunset at Tiananmen Square where I watched them raise or lower the, the, the national flag and then, you know, carried into Tiananmen Square and Forbidden City and, you know, just experiences I don't think I ever would be a part of if I didn't have, you know, basketball guiding me in the, in the direction I, was, I went. How hectic is the life when you're over in Europe? I mean, how hectic is the schedule? Is it grueling? Truthfully, the WNBA is a more grueling schedule. Uh, it's more compact. The teams expect more out of you, multiple practices per day. In Europe and some other countries that I've played in, it's been practice, but other people have lives too because they can't pay everybody big numbers. So these last five years when I was in Sweden, I think I was only the only professional player and I barely made anything. Normally it would not be enough to survive or live, but I made it work through the lifestyle I had created from the years past. Um, but everybody else had a normal job or they were uh, an athlete. What, what are the crowds like over there? The crowds and the fans, are they, are they, are the differences from what you experience over here? Very much so. Some are, some are big, some are small. Russia had one, one team in Mos or in Yekaterinburg, uh, was owned by the Euro Mining Company. And rumor has it, they paid the, the fans or the workers to come to games and basically cheer. So they were all in decked out gear. What? They, yes. That's it was crazy. crazy. They had the big boppers that made noise. They had blowers and whatnot. So they were fans in the seats, but it wasn't a very electric atmosphere. Um, if you go to Turkey, they have... Uh, soccer clubs which are football clubs um and you are born into this and you are that team and that color and they will die for it so when you have big teams like Fenerbahce and Besiktas play each other the hooligans show up and support and don't care anything about women's basketball or what you're doing and they just go at each other and they are throwing things and it is a dangerous environment. I mean, they throw stuff at you. They meet you what? on the court. No it way. Way, way. <laughs> so the game was suspended when I was there because they were throwing flashbangs back and forth between the, the, the Besiktas hooligans and the Fenerbahce hooligans. And the police are sitting right between them on the 50 yard line, basically at half court, three deep. So they can't get to each other, but they can throw things at each other. And that carries over. There's, you know, big bangs and smoke grenades. And it, it is crazy atmosphere. Uh, Americans and American sports is, it pales in comparison to the um, devotion. They put the fanatic in fan. I will say that. <laughs> how, hard sure. is it to, how hard is it to play when all this chaos is going around you? It's it's something. I mean, again, it builds it builds character and you have to play through a lot. I actually was threatened by uh, one of the clubs in Turkey because I got into words with a different player from their team. So the fans and the hooligans actually threatened me and I had to have a police escort with me at the game because no they way. Said, <laughs> no. Yep. So they so they they call them hooligans? They call them hooligans? Oh, yeah. That's what like the official name that they call them hooligans yep. hooligans 
what was your favorite city to play in? Um, there was a nice town in Italy called Schio. It was about 20,000, reminded me of Point, other than the fact that it was in Italy. Um, you know, just a nice tight-knit community, good support. The gym held uh, about 2,500 people, and we would fill it up on a nightly basis. The town was behind us. I could walk around, and people would be like, oh, ciao, Janelle, you know, and I'd wave like I knew them. But it was awesome because they were at the night, the game the night before. I went to the store, got some pizza. You know, they're like, here, this one's on us. Great job yesterday, you know. Oh, so, that sounds great. It really yes, sounds great. It, Italy was very uh, basketball, female basketball forward country. They had good st- good fans in each city. Some hooligans. We got our, our, again, the hooligans are in Italy. When we went to the south, the team was supposedly owned by the mafia. And uh, they started, they threw stuff at our vehicle, cracked our windshields. And oh. you know, they knew the route that the, the bus goes on. So they ambushed it. No way. That is, way. this is really, really crazy. It sounds yep. just crazy. Like this would never happen in the U.S. No. no. Again, I'm going to say that we're not as passionate as some <laughs> European uh, club <laughs> club fans are. <laughs> Janelle McCarvel is our guest today on WPR. We're talking women's basketball and what life is like as a professional athlete. I'm Shereen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. Back on Route 51, I'm Shereen Seward, Spash Girls basketball coach and former WNBA player Janelle McCarvel stays with us for the hour. Which experience do you feel you treasure the most when you look back at your career? That's a tough one. Um, I would have to say the experiences that involved other people. Um, You know, family was involved for quite a few in college, we we went to the Final Four in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, and we were a seven seed. We weren't supposed to make it, but we fought through the the three seed, the two seed, and the one seed in order to make it. And you know, the whole family showed up, um, friends of friends, and everything like that. So we everybody got to enjoy the experience that I had, and I helped create an experience for them. On top of it, uh, a, a part that thrust me into the light was probably when I was traded or not traded. Charlotte became defunct. And then each team drafted you drafted a player from Charlotte again. So then New York drafted me and I was basically drafted twice. So I spent my third year on in New York and in New York, it was obviously the big apple. So I'm playing in Madison square garden, I kind of come in. I wasn't really a big name yet because I had been injured from Charlotte. So people weren't really scared of me, but New York knew what I could do. So I went from being a sub to a starter. And then I ended up winning the most improved player of the WNBA uh, in, I think, 2007. Um, <clears throat> and from that point on, I knew people were going to be in trouble. I think at that moment, I knew what I could do and I knew what, uh, was out there for me so I played I played really well I got good accolades my money went up and at that point probably 20 20, 20,000 or 2017 or 2007 2008 um 
was great because again, I brought my family to New York and experienced things that we would never have experienced before. Um, so right there, final four in Louisiana and then making it in New York. Very cool. <clears throat> when did you decide to retire? What prompted it? And how did you know it was, it was time? Well, sadly, uh, the body took its toll wear and tear from the seasons. Um, I had a couple ruptured discs in my back that have not fully healed and still have trouble to this day, actually. Um, so if I, if I didn't have that, I would say I would probably still be playing. I ended up winning the Swedish MVP in 2021 and my back was still giving me problems then, but I was able to play through it. So in my mind, I would still be playing. Uh, it's just the back is really not cooperating. And for the money I'm making at this point, it wasn't justifiable to continue. So retirement was kind of thrust upon me in that aspect. And in that moment, um, that's when Craig Terpstra asked me if I would be interested in, in taking over the junior varsity girls team at Spash. And I jumped at the opportunity. And then this last year, he talked about him retiring from basketball. And I said, absolutely. I would think about taking a a step up to be the head girls coach and applied for the job, got it. And the rest is history. And uh, I'm retired from basketball, but I'm still able to get my fix and still, you know, be in the game as well. Hopefully passing down all the years of knowledge I've gotten uh, to a few of the up and coming youngsters who want it. So do you follow a lot of the WNBA games now? Do you have a, a favorite team that you, that you root for? No, I don't like any of them, <laughs> but I do like, I do like people. So I have friends and, you know, acquaintances and workmates that uh, play for te other teams now. So I don't really root for a team seeing I was part of so many and foes of so many for so many years. Right. Uh, if I actually was hired by one, it would be something different, but no, right now I have no allegiances. I just enjoy a good game and watching the athletes, you know, go, go at each other. How long is a typical basketball career for somebody? I mean, how old were you when you retired? And is that about normal or? Uh, no, I think I was uh, over the age of retirement, to be honest. I would, I mean, it's hard to say the average age. There's a lot of people who come in, spend one year and they don't play anymore. How old were I you when you, when you retired? How old? Um, 39. Oh, okay. Okay. I'm 41 now. So, I mean, I've only retired for two years. Yeah. Max. Um, so, yeah. And again, so... I'm, I'm playing overseas. So I was retired from the WNBA in 2017 because me and uh, the head honcho of the team at the time didn't see eye to eye on things. So I was done with the business side of my job because I lost the fun aspect of it. It was more of a job and a business than it was fun at this point. So being able to walk away from that on my own terms was fine by me. Uh, and then I continued to play overseas for the next five years. Talk about that a little bit. Do you think other players feel the same way? They get that same frustration that they, they love the game. They love the sport, but man, the business side of it is, is tough. Absolutely. And it's not always talked about, you know, because people really don't want to complain or, you know, be a Monday morning quarterback and talk about what could have happened or what should have happened. But in those moments, you know, you trust the coach or you trust the management. But at the end of the day, it's a job for them. And if they don't perform, they get fired. 
So they hold you as accountable. If you're not performing, they just go find somebody else who does. And as a young athlete or a young player new to the league, you're contributing, so you're not thinking about it. But once the expectation is there and all of a sudden you don't perform for a little bit, you know, then different kind of conversations and different relationships are built and formed. And, you know, once people say things, you can't unsay things. Uh, so it gets it gets to be a lot and heavy for older players because you're also more expensive. If you're a vet, you have a vet minimum of like 90000 that teams have to pay you. Or they could bring in a player who's less talented and a first-year player for 40000 And then they'll bring in two of them to fill a spot. You know, something like that. So it's a business. And I think people do get tired of being on the short end of it. But I don't know what's really going to change. I mean, the NFL does it. NBA does it. You know, you just kind of push the old ones out. And there's always somebody younger, faster, stronger, and cheaper. Circle of life, I guess, right? Yes. No different from any other job. Some days Mm -hmm. you like it, some days you don't. Well, you had some definite highs when you were in the WNBA, won a championship with the Lynx. What was that like? I mean, what did it feel like to win that championship? And did you get to go to the White House? It it was a very exciting season. That was my first year in Minnesota. I got traded from New York. I sat out two years in New York because the new head coach told me I was going to get fined if I wasn't there, but I was in Europe. So they were going to find me for not being in New York. And I told him if he finds me, I'm not coming. And he fined me. So I basically didn't go for two years. So I took two summers off and enjoyed home and loved it. <clears throat> and then Minnesota called and said, hey, we want to trade for you. You want to come play for us? So I said yes. Um, and then the rest was history, written into uh, the championship books. Did it, did it feel like coming home to you when you went to the Lynx? I mean, you know, you, you kind of had this conflict going on. And, and Minnesota, I mean, that's the state you went to college in. So did, did it feel good? It was a huge homecoming. I had friends in the area. I had life outside of basketball. So it wasn't like other years. It was a life outside, which I hadn't had for a while. So it was great. Um, and all the hard work and effort that we put into the year paid off in the championship. And again, the experiences and the trials and tribulations we had built us I was able to play with Waylon again my friend Lindsay Waylon that I went to college with we reunited on the team and uh you know that first championship was awesome couldn't I can't really explain it it was tremendous I enjoyed it in the moment but I was ready for another one the day after as were a lot of people did you get to go to the White House I did get to go to the White House I Tell got me about to meet- that what was that like <clears throat> okay um it's uh, a lot of lines, a lot of metal detectors, <laughs> a lot of fighting. Um, and they, they usher you in, you get to tour a little bit, and then uh, they pull this into, I forget which room it is now, but they, they collect your phones, and you know you know shit's about to get real. And then all of a sudden, in, in walks Barack Obama, you know, and he just, everywhere in a line, he walks down the line, shaking everybody's hands and congratulating them. And then he got to me. And he, he knew me by name. He told he called me my name. He told me he liked my passes. And again, I'm just, you know, just awestruck. Like, oh my President gosh. of the United States just called me by my name and knew what I do. So a tremendous moment. I was super excited and will remember it forever. I bet. Wow. You must have had goosebumps. Just awestruck, right? Awestruck is the way to put it. Yes. Mouth was <laughs> on the ground. A little embarrassing, actually, but <laughs> Barack, Barack's used to it. So, you know, I'm, 
I'm curious. I had a conversation re recently with somebody about natural talent and whether or not it even exists. And what's your thought? Is there such a thing as natural talent? Do you have natural talent? Do you have to have natural talent to succeed as a basketball player? No, I don't think you have to have it. I think it helps. Um, you need to have a will and a desire to work harder than everybody else. You have to sacrifice more than everybody else. You have to give everything you have in order to become the top 1% of your craft because there's so many young girls or boys or football players out there who want it that you know there's a lot to choose from and not everybody gets an opportunity so when you get that opportunity you have to make the most of it um i do think i'm naturally talented or have an athletic ability but that wasn't going to make me successful it was going to get me in the door get my foot in the door um but the hard work and discipline and everything I put into it from that moment is what made me have the success I did. Like LeBron James is talented. You know, he has inner talent. But if he didn't put in the extra work and the, you know, his sacrificing his diet and time with his family to get extra cardio in and stay on top of his game, and feel, you know, he's not going to be what he is. He would still be good, but he's not going to be what he is now in my mind. At what point did you say to yourself, yep, basketball is going to be my life? Were you in college at this point? Or, and by the way, yeah. what did you, what did you major in in college? Oh, I was a history major with minor in Scandinavian studies. So spending my oh. last five years in Stockholm was awesome. I, really I bet it that. was. I bet it was. Um, Yeah, but college really wasn't for me. I was happy I made four years. And uh, again, I don't think I could, I don't think I would have made four years of college if I didn't have basketball to help me and hold me accountable. I was never a great student. I was more of an athlete athlete than student athlete. Um, so but, when was it? When was it that you said, yep, basketball's it. This, this is it for me. It's going to be my life. Uh, I think maybe about that final four run, my junior year, my senior year, uh, I had a lot of pressure on my shoulders to be as good or better than the year before. And I feel like I lived up to it. Um, and then all of a sudden I was the number one pick, which kind of stamped my thought of, yeah, I'm pretty good. Uh, I was humbled my first and second year in the WNBA being injured and not being able to contribute and play to my ability to what I thought my ability was. Um, and then, like I said, when I won the most improved that next year, my third year in the WNBA, uh, you couldn't tell me nothing. I was unguardable. I was a good defender. I was in the best shape of my life. I was healthy. That was probably the moment I thought, you know, I need, I'm going to collect some money on this and people are going to be watching me on national television. So it was a pretty cool moment or realization at my young age. But yeah, it was about, uh, about my third year, maybe 24, 25. Okay. What's it like I'm for you now? What's it like for you now? I, I, I mean, being home, how's it feel? Still think I'm unguardable is what it is. <laughs> 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 um, no, I really, you know, I really tried to, uh, get home and, and settle into a life that I have not lived yet. Um, again, it's new for me, not having basketball practice. This is probably the longest I've gone without actually running a sprint ever. You know, I think I'm going on a year, you know, where I'm only pointing the finger at this point and teaching and telling them what they need to do and how hard they need to run and have the understanding that there's always somebody else working harder than you. 
Um, <clears throat> so the transition has kind of been okay. Uh, it's new. So again, learning and adjusting and falling into the role that it is. Do you live near your family? I live in my family house, actually. Nice. Before my mother passed, my father and uh, her divided up everything we had and distributed equally to the to my brothers and sisters. And um, I somehow won the house. So I own the house. I live in the house I grew up in. And it will always be in my possession. And home will always be home. I still plan on traveling and maybe have a house somewhere else at some point. Uh, but right now, this is where I want to be. And I'm I'm happy for the situation I'm in. So what's next for you? Do you think about getting involved in, I don't know, coaching at a, you know, at a different level or, or what are you thinking about? Well, I wanted to be here. So I'm here. So all I'm really thinking about is here. I do have other conversations to further my coaching abilities and coaching career. There are G League oppor opportunities out there for me as well. I'm not ready to take that because again I chose to be here so in this moment I'm not looking to go somewhere else in this moment I'm still looking to be next year's head coach at SPASH I'm still looking for the development of ninth grade eighth grade and younger players at this level um, so in my mind yes I have a long coaching career ahead of me if I want it anywhere I want it in some aspects but right now it is here at uh, Stevens Point Area Senior High School well we're glad to have you back in central Wisconsin Thanks so much for being here today and talking with me. I've, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity and we should uh, have a follow-up here in uh, a year or two or more. Sounds good to me. I'm in. I'm in. You're listening <laughs> to Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward. Extending once more sincere thanks to our guest, Janelle McCarville. Our producers are Joy Ratch Kramer and Ezra Wall. Our executive producer is Ezra Wall, who is also our on-air producer today. Thanks to John Altenberg for the Route 51 theme. You can hear the archive of today's program as well as our previous programs at WPR.org slash Route 51 and on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for joining us. You're listening to Wisconsin Public Radio. 